0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, for those of you who were expecting John Strapazon, I am not John Strapazon. So uh, you are probably a little surprised by that. I know I was uh, very surprised as uh, John is sick and so he wasn't able to make it uh, with us here today. But um, it's OK. We're going to we're going to be good. So this is a good morning. So as we get started this morning, um, you know, I... Uh, we were gone this past, well, about a week ago, we were in Texas with our uh, with our uh, youngest son and with his family to celebrate one of our four or five-year-old birthdays this year. We have uh, four grandkids that all turned five this year, so we were on the second one, and we were celebrating him, young Jameson. While we were there, uh, Samuel, our son, said, uh, you know, Dad, I've got this uh, book I need to give back to you, and I was reminding him, yeah, you also have another one. Uh, it's called To the Golden Shore. It's this, uh, story of Adonair and Judson. And the reason I was reminding him, it's one of my favorite books. And for those of you that have never read the book, I'll just tell you a little bit about it. and Judson was one of these guys. He, uh, he grew up in a Christian household, uh, long, long ago. And, uh, his, while he was in the process, he began to adopt the faith for himself and he began, uh, to, to walk with Jesus. And then he went to college. And when he got to college, he, He began to be really kind of ridiculed for his faith. Uh, A lot of people thought he was kind of uninformed or, you know, that his faith was kind of limiting him. And so he had a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that kind of made fun of him. The guy that was kind of the ringleader of this whole thing was this guy named Jacob Imes, who was just a little bit older than him. And so he began to listen to Imes and he began to think, you know, um, his philosophy kind of made sense to him, and he, he really found uh, Imes' whole view of things to be kind of this carefree way that was pretty appealing to him, and and so he began to uh, step into that, and he convinced himself that what Imes had described was really how life was and that God was really pretty irrelevant, and so that's how he began to live his life. Then he went home, and he went home for winter break, and he was there visiting family, visiting his uncle, visiting some others, and began to come back. When he came back, he stepped into, uh, this one town. He was going to stay there for the night. And, uh, as he did, he pulled in. There was only one room left in this one inn in the town. So he went in, checked in. And as he was laying there in bed that night, he heard these, this voice and this, uh, these somebody next door moaning and having all, all of these, you know, frightful cries all through the night. And he thought, what in the world is going on? And he, he couldn't figure it out. You know, and the next morning he got up and he had paid his bill was settling up. And he talked to the uh, guy there and he said, hey, um, my neighbor in the room uh, next door, you know, I think something going on. And the guy said, oh, yeah, he, he died. And he said, he died? And he's like, yeah, he goes, good night. You know, and he goes, did you know who he was? And he goes, yeah, he was this college student named Jacob Imes. And he was like, wow. And he goes back and he, he was kind of shaken to his core. He goes back. He begins to examine his faith. He begins to really look at it again for himself. And what he found out was his faith was built on some very established foundations. And what he did was he, he ended up giving the rest of his life to sharing the gospel with people in Burma. So if you get a chance to read about uh, Adnir Judson sometime, I'd really encourage you to do it because it's a fascinating, uh, guy, a fascinating book. Now, if you're a person of faith here today, if you're, if you're a Christian, you may, like Judson, have kind of felt sometimes like you've been marginalized in different situations. Maybe it was on campus, maybe it was at work, maybe it's just, you know, among peers. You know, some people see you as kind of simple and uninformed. Other people may see you as kind of like bigoted or narrow-minded. Um, sometimes you can even begin to wonder, you know, is there a basis for my faith? Is, is there really a reason that I believe like I believe? And so what I'd like us to do this morning is to spend a little bit of time looking at what is the foundation of our faith? How, why do we have that? What is the thing that's secure in our faith? Faith is really important. What you're going to find is it impacts every area of your walk with God. In fact, Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. So why do you need to have faith? I mean, what what's really the purpose? Well, the first reason is just, you know, God's invisible. I mean, honestly, um, you have to trust what you know about him. In other words, the words out of that verse right there, you must believe that he is. You must believe that he is. Also, you can't see the future. You don't know what your future is going to hold, but he does. And so you need to trust him. So faith plays a very, very important role in our lives. So what is faith? Well, if you look back a couple of verses in Hebrews eleven one, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Most Christ followers I know, they want to live a life of faith. In fact, most of them feel guilty that they don't live enough of a life of faith. Uh, Some feel they need to kind of work up their faith. Others think, well, you know, I need to just believe harder. Like somehow if you believe something hard enough, it's going to come into existence. It's like, yeah, no, that, that's not true. In fact, if you look again at that verse right there, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word assurance, it, it's a word, it means substance. It's the substance of things hoped for. It says hoped for is actually a word in the original language. that Those two words are one, and it's a word, and it means expected. These are things you're expecting. It's the, it's the substance that is expected. And then he says, it is the conviction of things not seen. And that word conviction there is translated in several um, in several editions of the evidence, the evidence of things not seen. See, the author of Hebrews says it's the conviction of things. In other words, there is evidence that is there in order to back up your faith. So let me let me give you kind of an example of that. Let's say uh, let's say Romano over here. Okay, Romano uh, has this Italian uncle, uh, Uncle Horatio. And uh, Horatio uh, sends him an email one day. Well, he doesn't send him an email because someone else does, because Uncle Horatio died. And Uncle Horatio says, hey, I wanted you to know, Romano, I have left you several things in my will. I have left you $5 million. I have left you a yacht. And I have left you a castle in England. And Romano goes, yeah, yeah, okay. This is the guys from Bonsalo. They're messing with me. Uh, they're sending me this stuff. I don't know how they got, you know, my uncle's name or anything, but there's no way that that's true. There's just no way it's true. But, you know, he's he's going to go out on a date with Sam later, and so he goes out and he goes to his bank account and he starts to withdraw money and he, he draws out, you know, the full amount for the date, so he gets $20. And <laughs> he has that. And then he looks at his balance and his balance shows up and it says, Five million and eighteen 18 dollars and he says what no way and he's thinking that can't be possible that can't be possible but I mean he looks again you know and that's what it says and he thinks wow wow and so he he's kind of thinking could that be possible and so he calls up you know down to Newport Beach and he says hey um have you guys had any yachts uh brought in there recently and they said you know actually we do we have one that's here it was uh, it was listed you know to a, a Horatio and then he's what? Yes, Horatio Orlando, you know, and he said, you know, and it's supposed to be here for his uh for his nephew. And he's like, "Wow. Wow." So all of a sudden he goes back home and he says to the guys in Boston, "Hey guys, get ready." We're going to go to England, and we're going to stay in my castle. And the guys are like, right. He goes, no, no. I'm paying for it. And they go, really? You know what I mean? They're like, with $18? And he, no, I've got money. You know, I've got money. Now, let me ask you a question. Was the email the foundation of his faith? No. No. No, the email told him about his faith, but the email wasn't the foundation of his faith. The foundation of his faith were things that happened in time and space. It was the money and the yacht. I mean, you look at those, you're like, whoa. You know, that is what made him look at it. That's what made him think, you know, I think this is really real. I think this is really something I can trust. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had something like that that was tangible? Well, we'll come back to that later. We'll do that. But um what is the foundation of faith for Christians? As we begin to look, what is the foundation of our faith? If you look in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 1 through 8, Paul says this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Now, see, men and women, the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our faith is an event that happened in time and space. It's the resurrection of Jesus. You don't have to wonder about something. You don't have to believe. You don't have to conjure something up. No, it is an event that happened in time and space, the resurrection of Jesus. Did you see verse 14 there? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is vain. So why is the resurrection, why is the resurrection such a big deal? If you look in verse 17, he says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Why? Well, if Jesus didn't die, then your sins have not been paid for. But if Jesus did die and he didn't rise again, then you're trusting a dead God. He's just gone. So he says, you know what? All of our faith rises or falls on the fact the historical fact of the resurrection so how can you be completely sure how can you have complete confidence in the resurrection let me give you three things i think that will help you to do that the first is the historical accounts in first corinthians 15 one and two paul says now i make known to you brethren the gospel which i preached you which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. When Paul writes that to them, it is in about 55 to 57 A.D. That's about 20, at most 25 years from the resurrection. And he references there, he says, things I shared from you, that was when he had visited them before, about two or three years earlier, in about 52 A.D., that was less than 20 years after the resurrection. No scholars, Christian or non-Christian, dispute that at all. They all say, okay, those things happened in that time period. In other words, if this was something that didn't actually happen, people could speak up, they could say something about it right there. I mean, this is something that just happened a little while back, but nobody did. 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, if you look right there, he says, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says, I'm writing to you what I received, and what he's referencing there is a story that was referred to in Galatians one, eighteen and nineteen, where it talks about how Paul had visited Peter and James back in Jerusalem, and when he visits them, he talks to them, and he begins to hear from them more and more about what they had experienced as they'd walked with Jesus. Now, that occurred in 35 A.D., a mere two or three years after the event had gone on. And then in 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 5, Paul says, um, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Now what Paul is quoting in that little spot right there is a creed that those three verses make up a little creed in the first century. It was mainly in the literate society. They didn't read a lot. They didn't have many books, but they didn't read a lot. And so what went on here was Paul, they would have different creeds. They were little short sayings they were ways that people could remember things ways they could pass things on and what you see here is paul is reciting this creed paul is telling him you know jesus died for our sins he rose again he was buried he rose again you know and then he appeared to cephas and then to the uh, 12 so some folks try to refute the resurrection they'll say something like well maybe it just grew up as a part of legend but there is no way that this was it was way too early to have been corrupted by any kind of legend at all. All scholars agree that this creed was written like two to four years after the resurrection took place. And so, so, so close. So historical accounts is one of the main reasons you can trust the whole resurrection. The second is eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, right there it says, And he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, to me, where Paul's talking about that. Now, if you look, he says right there, he appeared to James and all the apostles. Then he said, as he's talking about all the ones he appeared to, he said, most of whom remain. In other words, they're still alive. Guys, if you don't think this is true, go ask them they'll tell you for sure. Eyewitnesses to what happened. Go ask them. Then he says, some have fallen asleep. You know, Christians saw death as an entrance, not an exit. It was like you die, you fall asleep here, you wake up there. It is an entrance into the next world. That is exactly how we should see things today. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. So the eyewitnesses are over and over and over one of the main reasons why we can really trust the resurrection. The third reason, changed lives. Changed lives. When Jesus died, it was game over for his followers. Even the 12. I mean, they scattered everywhere. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. I mean, when they saw him die, and they, they were looking at that, they were like, that's it. I mean, they... Um, you know, they'd been following him around. They had thought, okay, he's the leader. He's going to, you know, step in. He's going to be the one who's going to lead us in into this new kingdom. And then all of a sudden they see him nailed to a cross and they think, that's it. Um, It was their friend. It was the one they'd followed for three years. He's dead. They are disillusioned. They're sad. They are scared spitless because now they're thinking they went after him. Maybe they're going to come after us. You look at them, I mean, John records in a vulnerable moment a little snapshot of them, and it says this in John twenty nineteen: When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, like I said, they were scared, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, I can guarantee you peace was not with them, okay? I mean, in the first place, when someone you think is dead... And you're behind locked doors, and suddenly they appear in a room that doesn't bring a lot of peace. You're like, "Whoa, what happened here?" You know I mean, they were not peaceful in fact, um well, they weren't peaceful yet. See, a couple of months passed by, and all of a sudden, you began to see a very different core in Acts chapter four verses one through three. What you see is the disciples boldly going around telling people about Jesus. You see them actually healing one of these guys that was there, uh, Peter and John do. And it says, in Acts chapter 4, it says this, As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. For it was already evening. Now, do you think the disciples were scared? I mean, these are the very guys they had just seen beat and kill Jesus just weeks earlier. Do you think they're scared? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they were. Yet, when they're questioned before the council, I want you to look at how they reply, because this is what they say in Acts four ten. They say, "Hey, if this is about the guy who was healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ." the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By his name, this man stands before you in good health. They don't sound scared. They don't sound scared at all. In fact, the men of the council were so confounded, they didn't know what to do. So they, you know, they threaten them and say, don't ever speak about Jesus again. And this is what they reply in Acts four, nineteen and 20 it says, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge, but we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. You see guys, their lives are suddenly transformed. I mean, they go from these cowardly men that are scattered all over the place to these bold guys speaking about Jesus. What in the world? I mean, you look at Peter and John, they go from cowardly to, to courageous. You see, james jesus's brother he goes from this doubter to this devoted follower and you see paul he goes from this persecutor to this apostle and you think what in the world how how did this happen well nothing could account for those except for the resurrection see when when you see somebody die be buried and come back to life it kind of changes you you know kind of you kind of like whoa that is different so How does that impact you today? How does that impact you? You know, or kind of like, you know, what what are what are next steps for you in that? Well, if you're one of those followers who has has followed Jesus, but you've always wondered, you know, is is my faith even defensible? I mean, you know, should I be apologetic about my faith or something? Know that your faith is not fragile. The foundation of your faith is an event in history. That, that is totally undeniable and totally indisputable. If you're someone who's been checking this Christian thing out and been kind of looking at that, kind of wondering, does this make sense? Is it true? Know this. Know that you have a choice to make. See, as a Scottish preacher said this, and it'll be here on the screen, he says, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud Or he was himself delusional and self-deceived. Or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. I love that word, inexorable. We ought to use that more often. It just means impossible. Okay, but I mean, it is inexorable. He says, you know what? You only get three choices. Either he was, you know, a liar and deceitful. Or he was crazy. And he thought he was God, but he was whack. Or he was exactly who he said he was. There's only three choices, and you've got to make the choice, and you've got to figure out what are the ramifications of that for my life. The book that Jeremy referenced earlier when he talked about a book that's available, a case for Easter over here, was written by a journalist And what that journalist did, he was an an atheistic journalist. His wife had begun begun a relationship with Christ, and he thought, you know what? I am going to disprove this thing and get it over with so we can get back to life as normal. So he set out. He was going to disprove the resurrection, and that's what he worked at for several years. And in the process, he became a Christ follower because he said the evidence for the resurrection was overwhelming. He said, there's nothing I can do to, to, to get away from that. In fact, an, Eastern greeting, an Easter greeting that has endured through the ages is one where they said in the first century, He is risen. And then someone else would reply, He is risen indeed. And you look at that and see men and women throughout the years, the reason they said that was they were reminding each other that, you know what, our faith is not fragile. Our faith is built on a bedrock foundation. Of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so we don't ever have to wonder about that. We don't ever have to wonder, will this be able to? No, oh, no, no, it is firm, it is secure. So those words originated from what um, from what uh, Victor had shared earlier in Matthew twenty-eight six. The angel said, "He is not here; he is risen." You know that has to be one of the most hopeful statements in all of Scripture, because you see there not not only did he rise then but he is risen today. You know, we have faith in a risen Savior. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why, as you go about your day, the thing I would encourage you to do today is remember, he is risen. He is risen. That is the whole thing. So let me pray for us, and then we'll invite the band back up. Father, thank you that... um, We don't have to just kind of conjure up belief or uh, try to figure out how to uh, make things like that make sense to us. Father, by your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, you have given us a steadfast foundation that we can trust in, that we can look to. So, Father, thank you for that. I pray that we would live our lives in direct response to who you are and to what you've done for us.